the setting uh, for these last chapters is Jesus's final night with his disciples before he is betrayed, arrested, and wrongfully executed. It'll be not even 24 hours later that he will breathe his last breath on the cross. And so these are his final words. So it stands to reason that these are some of the most important things that he wanted to communicate to them. As you'll notice, the flow of Jesus's words here are different than we see most anywhere else in the gospels. It's less of a teaching and an and overflow of Jesus's love and concern for his friends. It's around 16 times that Jesus tells them that he is going away so it's obviously he's trying to prepare them for life after he is gone. A few things about the Gospel of John. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you'll notice immediately that John is markedly different than the other three. For example, here are a few of the things that uh, happen in other Gospels that do not happen in John. Jesus's baptism, the calling of the twelve the exorcisms, the transfiguration, the parables, the institution of the Lord's Supper are totally absent in John. Additionally, what is unique to John is seven lengthy discourses. He turns water into wine, the reawakening of Lazarus, and an account of Jesus's early ministry in Judea and Galilee. And this discourse is the, the longest one, almost twice as long as any one he gives elsewhere throughout the gospels. And this is where we'll spend our time throughout Lent. Additionally, there are some theological distinctives of John's gospel from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John seems to focus more on the humanity of Jesus, which is consistent with 1 John, as we just got through, as his writings to the church of Ephesus in order to combat Gnosticism. He addresses the importance of keeping God's commandments and the wrong idea that we can be sinless. He focuses on a future eschatology rather than something that's present or currently realized. And he talks extensively on the work of the Holy Spirit. And all of these compared to the other gospels is much more extensive in John than we see in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It may well be that John wrote this as he did in order to contextualize the good news about Jesus for people who were interested in Jesus or for people who are being influenced by Gnosticism to correct faulty teachings from false teachers that had taught wrongly about Jesus and wrongly about the physical nature of humanity. A few historical notes here about John is there's reasonably strong argument that says John was written, reasonably strong argument that John was written the end of the first century, probably sometime during the reign of Domitian between 81 and 96, when John was, in, was old and he was ministering to the church of Ephesus. It's possible that the Gospel of John and the, the first book of John were written around the same time. And so this is the context that he's writing in. This is who he is writing to. And as far as author John, the apostle of Jesus, is considered to be the author of John. While he's not expressly named in the Gospel, the only John that is named in this book is John the Baptist. Evidence suggests that when John refers to himself, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. While it's possible that there was some editing after John had written this gospel, there isn't substantial evidence to establish a, an author different than John as the apostle of Jesus. Now, for some backstory and context, that's what we're in for the next six weeks for the book of John. And now we're at this dinner party. I want you to think of a moment of an awkward dinner party that you've been to. Maybe the food was terrible and no one told the host. 
maybe the topics of conversation were embarrassing or vulgar or filled with too much self-disclosure. One of the most awkward dinner parties I can think of is from the episode of The Office, which is entitled Awkward Dinner Party. And while I wasn't there, it was incredibly awkward. If you've ever seen the show, if you haven't seen the show, imagine neon beer signs, a shattered TV, open conflict and conversations about vasectomies. Yes, it is an incredibly awkward dinner party. You can see the very nice plasma screen TV that gets shattered in this episode. While we may think of Jesus's last supper with his disciples as a beautiful and symbolic meal, and it certainly is, it was filled with plenty of awkward moments throughout the evening. The first thing that happens is Jesus gets up in the middle of supper and begins to wash his disciples' feet. Typically, this was done as guests entered a house, but for whatever reason, we don't know why, Jesus decides to do this in the middle of dinner. Either the typical foot washing hadn't happened and Jesus was doing it, or Jesus was doing this in the middle of dinner to further make an example of his love for them. It was my freshman year of college. I was at a small Christian college about 45 minutes outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. The whole school was about 800 students. So think very, very small. And unbeknownst to the incoming freshmen, freshmen, there was a tradition where seniors would wash the feet of the freshmen in a ceremony of sorts. So what I remember is we had this schedule for orientation of our first week or two on campus and we go into the cafeteria. So, and remember 800 students, so it's not exactly like a huge cafeteria. We go into the cafeteria, it's nighttime, and all of the seniors are just kind of standing around these tables. And so we find our, our seat and it's, it's dark, it's night. And so we sit down. As soon as we sit down, I see a bucket and a rag and I quickly put together what was happening. And so we then got our feet washed by the senior class. I got my feet washed by this guy whose name I didn't know. I had never talked to him before. And after this, I certainly never talked to him ever again. Obviously it was memorable because it was seared into my brain. But other than these kind of weird examples and specifically Christian circles, we don't really have anything like foot washing these days. It's totally foreign to us, but it was a common custom back then. It's typically a job that was reserved for servants. Think for a moment how dirty your feet are at the end of a regular day in socks and shoes. Now imagine wearing open-toed shoes and walking around in dust and dirt and sand all day. Those feet are going to be nasty. Here's what one commentator said about foot washing. For a superior to perform the act of an inferior would be an incomprehensible contradiction of their relationship. If foot washing is not beneath one's dignity, nothing is. If foot washing is not beneath one's dignity, nothing is. This gives you an idea of how degrading this act really was. It was better to not wash your feet at all than have someone else other than a slave do it. So while we may see this as a selfless act from Jesus, and it was, and we'll talk more about that in a second, it certainly was supremely awkward. This is why Peter denies Jesus's attempt to wash his feet. This was embarrassing for Jesus and everyone in the room knew it. And so Peter is trying to help his master out. And as Jesus persists, Peter says that he must wash his hands and his head and his whole body. 
on the surface, this seems like a reasonable request given the circumstances. But I think something else is happening and going on here with Peter. Peter is ultimately refusing Jesus. I believe this is an element of pride and self-righteousness that is at work in Peter. It's not an act of humility to refuse what Jesus is offering. What Peter could not understand was that his Lord and his master might serve him and love him in such a radical way that he would choose to wash his feet. This radical act of love that Jesus was extending to his disciples, Peter rejects and denies the grace and love that Jesus is extending in that moment. And as the night unfolds, notice that Jesus doesn't continue, he doesn't confuse the relationship between himself and his disciples. He still refers to himself as Lord and teacher. He's clear in who he is and who his disciples are. And he remains committed to provide them radical examples of love. And one that will only lead to the most radical example of his death on a cross, not even 24 hours later. While Jesus's death certainly is radical, it's a universal act of love. But here in the scene, we have specific and particular acts of love that Jesus is giving to his disciples. And they are confused and bewildered about what is happening. And as this awkward scene is finally over, I imagine the disciples are thinking, thank goodness that is over. To then Jesus kind of ups the ante again and goes on to say that one of them there is going to betray him. And what it says in the text that I really like is it says that Jesus was troubled in spirit. I often think of Jesus as some kind of human robot in that he like shuts down his emotions and things don't affect him like they would affect us. But here we have this very human moment from Jesus. He's troubled. The weight of what about is about to happening is sinking in and the betrayal of a close friend is unsettling for him. We're often familiar with this story, but imagine for a moment how hurtful and painful that must have been for Jesus and that must have been for the disciples to hear as well. They've gone through thick and thin together to only hear that one of them is going to turn their back on everything they've done together and then to betray their master. There are whispers around the table because the disciples are scared to ask the follow-up question. Who is going to betray you? Notice their confusion. Notice there's no speculation about who they think it might be. They're completely taken aback by this. It's totally blindsiding to them. And then Jesus finally answers them and tells them, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. With this, Jesus has another beautiful and specific act of love. Even in the moment of betrayal, Jesus extends an act of friendship, a fellowship to Judas. He gives the bread to Judas as if to extend one last attempt of don't do this. The sign of giving Judas the bread to illuminate he will betray Jesus is the very same time a sign and extension of love and friendship. But we know how the story goes. And and John tells us this haunting phrase that Satan entered into him. It's as if 
Judas has crossed some kind of personal and spiritual threshold and Satan took hold of him. How could this happen to someone who spent significant time with Jesus and significant time with other disciples all doing the same thing and following Jesus? We only get slight indications throughout the gospels. Like Judas has a love for money or his disdain for when Jesus's feet are anointed with an expensive oil. But nothing would lead us or other disciples to believe that he was capable of this type of betrayal. As best we can tell, it was, it was gradual. And then this precipitating moment pushes the whole thing over the edge. It's a gradual descent for Judas. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he has this quote about the road to hell. The road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. As Judas moves to the point where he is willing to walk out and betray Jesus, he's arrived here because of a slow, gradual descent. He's turned his back on Jesus. He's turned his back on the disciples. His descent was marked with a love for money, a cynicism at others' genuine act of worship. And with that, Judas leaves. After that, I imagine others were even more rattled. They're imagining things couldn't get any worse. And if that weren't enough, Peter starts to chime in as Jesus is saying, where I'm going, you cannot come to me. And Peter says, no, we will follow you wherever you go. And Peter is adamant that he would do this. But Jesus goes on to say that, Peter, you will actually deny me three times before the rooster crowed. Nearly hours after this conversation, Peter's going to go out and deny Jesus. A foot washing, a betrayal, and a denial. Not recipes for a good dinner party. But this is the scene of Jesus' last few hours with his disciples. We're familiar with Peter and Judas's response. Peter can't stand the idea of Jesus serving him and he responds with seeming enthusiasm for Jesus, but only then goes on to deny him. Judas's decision to betray Jesus was slow and gradual. And surely when he set out to follow Jesus several years ago, he wasn't setting out to betray him at that point. But something happened along that way. And as crazy as it sounds to us, even being around Jesus daily, he wasn't changed. We know the response of Peter and Jesus, of Judas and Peter to Jesus. But can we see ourselves in those responses as well? Are we like Peter and that we actually don't want Jesus's grace? We craft our lives in a way where we seek perfection and, and to need Jesus is actually an affront to our pride and our sense of having it all together. Yet Jesus in his tenderness, he comes to us and our response is, I'm okay, Jesus. I actually have this on my own. I'm certainly guilty of that. Are we on a constant roller coaster with Jesus? One day we are fired up and we feel connected to God. And the next day we're, we're ready to get rid of the whole thing and flat out deny it. Are we like Judas where we love money or the things that money brings like status or comfort and possessions? Are we like Judas in that we are cynical? We look around at 
other Christians, we look around at churches, we look around at the world and we say, what good is it to do that? Why would you do something like that? We look at others and their longing and desire for Jesus and we just have disdain for them. It's with an air of condescension and and self-righteousness that we are cynical and that we're critical. I'm certainly guilty of that as well. Yet despite all of these things, despite everything that's happened, Jesus remains committed in his love for Peter and Judas. And he remains committed in his love for you and me. This whole chapter is bookended by Jesus's love for his disciples. How could it be anything else? This is who Jesus is. This chapter, chapter 13, begins with one of my favorite verses that I've come across in this time reading. And he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His love for them has never wavered. It's, it's now something that is burdening for him because he loves them so deeply and he will love them to the end. He goes on to give his final words and oftentimes his disciples are confused and bewildered as to why are you saying that? He's washed their feet in this radical act of love and to demonstrate the specific love that he has for them as individuals. And then he goes to the cross with this universal act of love for the world. He has a particular act of love for washing his disciples' feet and now a universal act of love for all of us. And it's this specific love that he says that as we exhibit for one another, this is the thing that is going to mark us. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. His love for them is very much the thing that holds them together. And it's their love for one another that's going to be a defining characteristic. Notice Jesus says that it's your love for one another. And this is how the world will know that you are my disciples. You will know that you belong in the name of Jesus because of your love for one another. It's not a profession of creeds or an institution of the Lord's Supper or proper theological beliefs. The thing that is distinctive about the disciple of Jesus should be our love for one another. I think one of the reasons Jesus chose foot washing is because of the radicalness of the act. It's not something the disciples would have thought to do for one another, yet it was an everyday task. And an everyday cast that was considered to be demeaning to the point where his disciples are asking Jesus, why are you doing this? What might it look like for us to do the same for our friends, family, and neighbors? Based on my experience, I wouldn't recommend an actual foot washing. But how can we use our home or car or job to show radical love to others? How can we use our money or adjust our budgets in order to be more generous? Could we give away a car as crazy as that sounds? Could we open a room in our house to someone who needs it? How can we use the most basic everyday resources as a means to show love to one another?